Hi, this is Steve Nerlick. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 87, Something Different. Well, who doesn't love a podcast that provides endless speculation about what's inside black holes, what the heck dark energy might be, and what was there before the universe began. But sometimes here at Cheap Astronomy, we get questions that are about something else altogether. That is, plain old garden variety stuff. For example, Dear Cheap Astronomy, Why is the abundance of elements not ranked by atomic number? So, the most abundant element in the universe is hydrogen, atomic number one. The second most abundant element is helium, atomic number two. But a lithium, number three, and beryllium, number four, the next most abundant? No, not even a bit. In terms of abundance, after helium, it's oxygen, atomic number eight, carbon, six, neon, ten, and then iron, atomic number 26. Indeed, hydrogen and helium are ridiculously abundant, making up 98% of all the elements in the universe, where hydrogen alone is 73% and helium is another 25%. This is why astronomers refer to anything other than helium and hydrogen as metals, meaning they are pretty much an afterthought in the grand universal scheme of things. Within the first three minutes after the Big Bang, the proto-universe expanded and cooled until protons and neutrons, the building blocks of matter, became possible. But in the still hot, dense universe, their fusion into helium also became possible. So a lot of helium was produced through fusion until the universe had expanded and cooled further and that fusion was no longer possible. Since then, stars have been the main reason why there is such a huge diversity of elements other than hydrogen and helium in the universe. Even moderate-sized stars like our Sun can fuse helium into carbon and oxygen, and big stars that go supernova can do that and a whole lot more. But most higher-level fusion steps after helium involve the photodissociation of previously fused elements, like carbon, oxygen and so on, into alpha particles, which are essentially helium nuclei. Any additive fusion processes generally involve the addition of these alpha particles, which means you add two protons. So you commonly see even-numbered stellar fusion products, like helium, atomic number two, carbon, six, oxygen, eight, neon, ten, and so on up to iron, 26. But lithium, atomic number three, and boron, number five, don't get a look in. In any case, what happens in a big star before it goes supernova doesn't really matter that much, since once it does go supernova, a lot of its core elements are destroyed as they are mashed into what will become either a neutron star or a black hole. It's the explosion itself that generates a whole bunch of new elements. So everything from oxygen 8 
to Rubidium-37 mostly comes from these supernova explosions, where there's still some preference for even-numbered fusion products due to the involvement of alpha particles, and you'll get proportionally more smaller elements, like oxygen, than you do bigger elements, like rubidium. Type 1a supernovae, which are white dwarfs that accumulate enough new mass to take them over the Chandrasekhar limit, also contribute significant amounts of elements, like calcium, atomic number 20, and zinc, 30, making many of these elements abundant enough to play minor roles in life on Earth. The substantial overabundance of oxygen and carbon in the universe is also contributed to by low-mass stars like our Sun, which release much of their core contents within a planetary nebula after they've swollen up into a red giant. These low-mass stars also release elements like strontium-38, hafnium-72, and others even lesser known, all the way up to lead-82. As for anything smaller than oxygen, like we said before, most hydrogen, helium, and also lithium, and a teeny bit of beryllium, arose directly from the Big Bang, but since then, most beryllium and lithium, and also boron, comes from cosmic rays striking larger elemental nuclei and breaking them up into smaller nuclei. And then at the other end of the spectrum, quite heavy elements, like silver, 47, gold, 79, all the way up to uranium, 92, and plutonium, 94, mostly arise from the collision of neutron stars. Since that's not a common event, most of these elements are rare, so don't play much of a role in life on Earth. Indeed, some are toxic to life on Earth, since we've just never had to deal with them during our metabolic evolution. And lastly, anything heavier than plutonium, like americium, 95, up to Laurentium, 103, are just made in human laboratories. Of course, you could still argue they are the products of stars, since we're the products of stars. This is the middle bit. So, okay, we did mention the Big Bang and black holes, but apart from that, there was nothing too speculative or hypothetical there. So why don't we try another of these with just real-world issues, no black holes, no dark stuff. Dear Cheap Astronomy, what's involved in clearing the tower? The announcement that mission name whatever has cleared the tower mostly derives from NASA mission protocols and some Hollywood embellishment. With most human-crewed missions, NASA Launch Control in Florida is in charge of the mission up to and including the launch, which might include decisions to abort missions due to bad weather or even launch emergencies that might require activating an escape procedure to rescue the astronauts. But once the rocket has cleared the tower, the announcement goes out that Mission Whatever has cleared the tower because that's the point at which Mission Control in Houston takes over. Okay guys, we got it. So, clearing the tower is largely just a checkpoint. It's not like everyone breathes a sigh of relief 
because the most dangerous part of the mission is over, indeed a whole bunch of other most dangerous parts of the mission are still to come. Mind you, getting your rocket to clear the tower is no small matter. Indeed, just getting your rocket an inch off the ground is no small matter. And this is a good place to begin. At the bottom of most rockets are those conical rocket engine nozzles, which don't look like they could hold a lot of weight, and indeed they can't. Nor can they fire effectively without an empty space underneath them. Most Soyuz launch rockets are actually held off the ground by four support arms before launch. So if you watch a video of a Soyuz launch, you can see those arms let go and spread outwards as the rocket takes off. Most other big rockets rest on the bottom of their tubular fuselage and their rocket nozzles sit within cavities beneath, their initial blast being directed down and then sideways and out through what's called a flame trench. A Saturn V's fuselage was supported at four points, with each support point incorporating hold downs which wouldn't let the rocket move until all the engines were at full thrust. Then, once they did let go, the rocket immediately lifted off. In most respects, lifting off is a much bigger deal than clearing the tower. Once a rocket is lifted off, you can't just throttle back on your launch engines and land again. There's way too much mass in a fully fueled rocket to manage that kind of fine manoeuvring. SpaceX is doing amazing things with retro rocket technology, but that still involves landing mostly empty component parts of the original launch vehicle. So, when the announcer exclaims liftoff, that is a genuine exclamation of relief, excitement, and perhaps trepidation. Anyhow, the tower that hopefully does eventually get cleared is generally called an umbilical tower, because it's mostly involved with feeding the rocket rather than holding it up. The tower loads the rocket with both fuel and crew and also allows maintenance personnel to access different parts of the rocket. With the Saturn V and other large rockets, there are various arms or bridges that feed fuel to each of the rocket's stages and an elevator that takes maintenance personnel up to various points as well as taking the crew right up to the top. The Saturn V's tower had nine such arms, including the access arm that the astronauts could walk across to enter the command module. And at the end of the access arm is what NASA calls the White Room, where a number of support personnel help the astronauts enter the cabin and strap in. One of those support personnel was Gunther Wendt, who gets a mention in the Apollo 13 movie. I wonder where Gunther went. We mentioned escape systems earlier. In the event that something went wrong with a Saturn V launch, there were three options. A rocket mounted on top of the command module could launch the module away from the rocket with the astronauts inside it, and then the command module's parachutes could be deployed to land safely. Another option, prior to liftoff, was that the astronauts could exit the command module and attach themselves to a zip line extending out from the tower, which would take them from over 100 metres height down to ground level several hundred metres away from the launch pad. Yet another option was to go down in the elevators, which took about 30 seconds, 
and then jump, Thunderbird style, into a 60 metre slide tube which took them down to the rubber room, an underground bunker which could protect ground crew and astronauts even from the force of a fully fuelled Saturn V exploding directly above them. This is the end bit. So, there you go. It was a story that ended with a bang, but not the big one. There were life and death scenarios, but without any spaghettification involved. And there were things that matter that weren't dark. So, sometimes, you really can do astronomy podcasts that are just about stuff. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you do want to go back to the old dark black bang format, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll cross that event horizon for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlick, Cheap Astronomy.